Figure Developer Podcast, the podcast where we talk about new and exciting technologies, professional development, clean code, career advancement, and more. I'm John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. With us today is Glenn Condren. Glenn is a program man- oh, yeah. Glenn is a program manager on the application platform team at Microsoft, where he spends most of his time working on the ASP.NET 5 core runtime. Welcome, Glenn. Hi. Thanks for having me here. So uh, before we get started, uh, why don't you tell us kind of how you got into the software industry and um, how you got to where you are today? Yeah, so, I mean, I wanted to be a programmer um, before I knew really what that was. I just kind of wanted to use computers. And then after that, working with computers seemed a lot less like work than anything else that was happening in my hometown, uh, which is kind of how I, how I ended up being a, being a dev. And then eventually, uh, since you uh, since you said you have a focus on um, helping out people and helping out people with their career, my path to Microsoft primarily was because of people that I met and that I knew um, to some extent, and to some extent via the open source community, via meeting people that then eventually I was able to get kind of interviews and be able to pass the interview process and stuff like that. I got to Microsoft and became a PM on the Entity Framework team for a little while and then eventually worked on this thing um, this uh, project thing that was started off be called Project K when there was only a few people working on it. If you have, any of you have been using .NET Core for a long time, that was the name that we called it back when there were only a few people and we started out. And so I've worked on it since we started basically working on various things, various bits and pieces of it. And now I lead a team who, I lead a team of PMs who run, who collectively own ASP.NET Core, uh, LD Framework, Ty, um, and a few other bits and pieces of float around the place and just generally form part of the .NET PM team's management. What was it like in those early days with the early bits that, that we now know of .NET Core? Yeah, so, oh man. So if you imagine, imagine like I had not been at Microsoft for all that amount of time. So I had managed to kind of come through the fire of switching from an application developer primarily to a framework developer which introduces lots of concerns that you don't necessarily think about or, or care about as much when you're an app dev. But then hitting this thing that we started with .NET Core, there's a talk I gave, it is recorded um, from a tech ed a while, like a long while ago now, where I put a breakpoint in the first line of C that you could hit when running DNX at the time, and then stepped through from there as we booted the CLR, we did all the way up to basically ASP.NET Core, right? And I was stepped through and stepped through and stepped through and stepped through until you got into your apps managed code. So I went from the building apps to learning enough about the stack to be able to give that talk, right, as we built up this thing. And there's an analogy that's used at least in Microsoft that I was introduced here. I don't know if it's common Americanism or not about drinking from a fire hose. And I felt like the fire hose was lifting me into orbit when I was in those early days. There was a fairly small team. All of us were just doing everything. We were standing, trying to stand up everything, right? There was, there was a massive amount to learn. Every time I turned around, there was something I knew nothing about that I was going to throw myself headfirst into in order to try 
and uh, make a difference. We built the website ourselves. We decided to download DNX. I owned DNVM for a while to change different versions of it. Um, we were just, we were just anything that needed to be written, we were writing it. Whatever, whatever had to happen, just like try and make this thing great, and we did our best. That can be a stressful environment to work in, but it can also be really, really fun. Just because you you know you're getting to do new things all the time, it's it's like 100% greenfield, which is which you know every developer really likes writing fresh code. Did the stress ever get to you at any point? Uh, yeah, I think so. Like I, I think my family were kind of prepared. Like I knew going in, this was really ambitious, and I remember having a conversation with my wife at some point where I said, "Hey, I have this opportunity to go work on this thing. I'm really excited about it. I think it could be really important one day." I it may be all consuming. I know enough to now to know what I'm getting in for. I think it could be all consuming. And she was like, "Yeah, cool, go for it." Right. So yes, it did get to me at times. I know there were situations it did, but I also have been on projects that I would categorize as death marches before I joined Microsoft, and it wasn't like that. And I'm not really sure necessarily of what the distinctions between those were. Um, I wasn't. I wasn't locked in a room with five people all weekend, all day, every day, and all weekend. still have lots of friends from my death march time, which is something that you'll hear from lots of people who've been on a death march. <laughs> um, but uh, it wasn't that, right? It was excitement that drove us. And it was, I want to, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to work on this thing for five hours, but I'm doing it because I really want to see how it's going to work. And I, maybe maybe that was the defi- defining feature in that I was still felt like I was under control. I was in, in, in control of it. But it definitely did get stressful. And I definitely definitely needed time off when I took it. I was pretty well broken when I would um, when I would eventually take some time off and stop working, thinking about work. Um, I've said before, even today, with the day to day of the job that we do, it takes a week or so to stop thinking about work, and then you can start having a vacation, right? And if you're not mm-hmm. in a situation where you can take that much time off in one block, it gets real hard. And it seems like the the teams there at Microsoft are continuing to do really exciting things. It seems like they're continuing to release very, very quickly. And I think even David Fowler was tweeting over the weekend that he was, was reading some subreddits about the iteration of .NET technologies is too fast for some community members. Yeah, like even as I was leaving, and I, I remember this distinctly, that as I was leaving the place that I, the government department I was contracted out to last before I, before I joined Microsoft, one of the other people there said, hey, I just want you to go to Microsoft, tell everybody, slow down. <laughs> I cannot keep up with what you guys are all doing, right? And we've probably tripled the speed. We've quadrupled. Like, we've gone way faster since then, right? This was long before. This was still .NET framework speeds of shipping things. Um, we had only just really started, just barely started the open sourcing of all the things. Like this was before even all of that started to happen. Interesting side note, I've only ever worked on open source technology for my time at Microsoft. Um, like I've never actually had to work on something closed source, which is an interesting point given I've been here for a fairly long time now. Yeah, so it's only gotten faster. Like, and it's interesting that we have this at least a duality in the customer base of people that are interested in technology in general, but .NET, let's say specifically, where some of our customers really want us to speed up. They want to, we want us to, we've got to keep up. We've got to be able to do the new things. We want to be able to see the performance improvements. They're constantly churning and we need to be able to providing the support for all of those people. And we have a lot of other people who are like, I really don't want you to go that fast. I just want you to ship .NET Framework. I want to keep writing the code that I'm writing. 
and I want to add all this value to my business and I don't want to have to relearn what C Sharp is every time you ship a new version because it doesn't look like C Sharp anymore or something of that sort, right? I've heard opinions all across this vast spectrum. Yeah, it's it's always going to be difficult when you have a customer base as large as ours to satisfy all comers. Yeah, I think it's a I think it's a real fine line to to try and walk because I mean you don't want to hit that point where the majority of your community gets framework fatigue, which is something that the JavaScript community experiences a lot of. Yeah. But you also don't want to feel stagnant because then you're like uh, you know like the C community who hasn't gotten you know, there's not a lot going on there. It's not exciting. <laughs> yeah. So that while they have a, a really, really passionate community, they don't have a lot of newcomers because there's, it's just, there's not anything new to attract people in. Yeah. And I think that's where we were back be- before we started core was we were starting to set into a little bit of a stagnation phase and we have changed that as we've progressed. Um, and now it's just a matter of not going too far, just in quotes, Right, just yeah. in air quotes, because it's just, just, just don't go too far. It's easy. I'm hoping that the new shipping cycle that we have, where we ship every year and every second year, gives you a long support. I think I'm hoping that, I'm kind of hoping that the um, the predictability and sticking to a predictable schedule helps a bit with with all of that. People can just pick, people can kind of have some level of assurance of when they should jump on the thing and when not. Right. So I really appreciate the schedules and and the commitments to we are going to ship. LTS versions, and we are going to support them long term so that you don't necessarily have to upgrade to the latest and greatest. As long as you're on, on an LTS supported version, that's going to continue to work for you. And you can you can load things side by side and you can play around with things. Yeah, changing hearts. And that was one of the biggest core value props of .NET Core, right? right? Was like, unlike .NET Framework, you just install them side by side and call life good. And then, and then using that to then give people the freedom and the flexibility to be able to have LTSs and non-LTSs and stuff like that makes sense. But one of the big things is to try and change hearts and minds, right? Which takes a long time as, as our marketing, as, our, as Beth, who's in charge of like .NET marketing and .NET public messaging and stuff will say, like, just barely people know that we're open source. So how long does it take before a message around, you know, maybe you don't necessarily need to update to the latest one every time like you used to have to. Being open source and, and cross-platform now, working on experiments in the open and, mm-hmm. and allowing people to see the work that's that's happening. I mean, Clayton is is extremely excited about Blazor and was showing off some of the code when you joined. We're about 10 days after the .NET Conf focus on microservices, yeah. where you, you spoke about Project Tie, and we're going to talk about that a little later. Yeah, that was a big thing. Blazor kind of forged the path, right? Like, we have a lot of... A desire, let's say, to experiment, to prototype, to try our ideas, right? Like long gone is the time where I'm going to take, you know, 50 people and put them in a closed, put them in a building in Microsoft and go invent something and then say, ta-da, we've solved all your problems. Look at this amazing piece of software that we've just built. Obviously, it's going to solve everything you do and all of the community reacts with thanks. I hate it. <laughs> one of the, the only real way to try and combat some of that is to do the to do agile, right? <laughs> to do stuff like agile has been saying to do for a long time: prototype, experiment, test, like talk to people, involves involve people in the decision making process, involve people in the development. So the the how do we do that is some of one of the challenges that that our kind of senior leadership has been put down. 
And in even in things like Visual Studio, you'll start to see this now. You'll start to see features hidden behind flags where it's like, tick this box to see this magic new feature that we're shipping in the live product. But it's like, you have to check this box to see it. Because if we're not actually doing those things and testing those things and talking to people and surveying people and asking people questions, how can we have any confidence that we're building something that at the end of the day, anybody is going to use? And But then at the same time, talking about these fine lines, how, because if something is built and supported and shipped by Microsoft, that means something. And I want it to mean something. I want you, John, or you, Clayton, to be able to say, oh, Microsoft shipped this. I can trust that. I know it's going to be supported. I know it's good enough. And we've done a pretty good job of making that the default of a lot of people in our ecosystem. But then how do you say, okay, except for this bit, except for maybe that bit over there, maybe this thing over here, don't use that one. Right? How do we how do we do that? And so that's where we started to get this consistent messaging around what the word experiment means. And Blazor was really the first one where we tried to do this, where we we're like, it's an experiment because we don't know what it's going to be, but we also know that we can't build it if you don't help us work out what it's going to be, which is fundamentally what experiment means. As well as we were always reserved the right to say, you know what, that was a bad idea. So with that, let's let's talk about another one of the experiments, Project Tie. Yeah, absolutely. You've spoken about it a, a number of different times. We'll have a number of different links in the show notes for, for past presentations and videos and demonstrations that you might not be able to see on podcast. So what is Project Tie? So Project Tie is a developer experience for building and publishing things that depend upon other things, shall we say, which is a super uh, generic title. What Tai lets you do is run, say, in a web application, .NET web application that depends on, a, say, a SQL server, and say, run, and your server, SQL server starts, and your web app starts, and you can attach the debugger to the web app if you want, and you can communicate to the SQL server easily. And then when you stop your app, there's no more SQL server on your machine. And then, secondarily, what went about when you have a web app that's talking to an API, and the API is talking to a Redis, and maybe that API is then calling a different thing. Uh, maybe there's a message queue involved, or maybe there's a background worker that's moving messages, reading messages and updating a database, something along those lines. Ty will let you run all of those things that I just described in one command as well. You do Ty run and all of that starts up. So it scales down to I have a single CS proj without any extra stuff in my folder and I do Ty run and it just runs. And it runs my app just like running .NET run really then I can say, okay, well, that's cool, but now I need this data, this thing that is this, now I need a dependency like a Redis or a SQL or a Postgres or a message queue or something. Well, as long as that thing that you need can run in a container, the magic and power of the container metaphor, then uh, you can depend upon that thing and we'll take care of running it for you. And as a bonus, we will also take care of setting environment variables that tell you how to talk to that database or thing with a structure that you can get that with a convenient, predictable structure. And then we've got some helper methods that hang off uh, eye configuration in the Microsoft extensions namespace of .NET to be able to like read those, those config values and like parse them out for you. So you have like config.getConnectionString, Redis, and then that's what your code does. And then that'll give you a connection string to the Redis that we spun up for you automatically, even if it's on a completely, even if it's a completely different Redis than last time or whatever. Um, we also do things like automate ports. We'll pick the ports that your, all your apps are going to run on so they don't conflict with each other. And then you say, configuration, get me a URI for votes in the case of the damp example that I showed at .NET Conf, and we'll give you back the URI. 
and it'll be a different port every time you run. But you don't go, care, and you don't know. Uh, it also gives you a dashboard to be able to list all the things, see logs, see some telemetry in line when you're running your application, uh, some watch support to be able to say, just watch this whole, whole directory over here. Every time I change code, restart things, and just keep everything running, and I'm just going to write code, and then I want to be able to like click around my site or move, move messages around or do whatever the thing does. And then dropping all of that up, that's the developer experience of it that everybody understands. You can then say, okay, cool, now containerize it. And all those .NET apps that you were just running, all those .NET projects would just become containers without you knowing anything about Docker or learning anything about Docker or Docker Compose or any of these things. And then it can push them to a registry and then also create the Kubernetes configuration to be able to deploy all those containers to a Kubernetes cluster, setting up appropriate ingress rules and things like that to allow you to go browse to your whole that whole thing running. So you can go from got a web app talking to a database or maybe a couple of services on your local machine tie run do your dev loop say deploy and now it's on kubernetes and you've never seen docker and you've never seen kubernetes files at least which is an amazing way to start learning because you can get your app running in the way that you wanted really really quickly we had ralph squalachi on a while ago talking about kubernetes and why kubernetes and if mm. kubernetes and do you need kubernetes and that type of thing was the answer a resounding maybe? <laughs> it, it was often, mm -hmm. uh, maybe it's not necessary. Maybe it's not your job, your role. Maybe it is necessary and someone else has to have that that knowledge, that expertise. Is this is Project Tie the, the stopgap of the pain of getting to Kubernetes? Yeah, like that's basically what we were aiming for, right? Is, man, Kubernetes is hard. Even outside of that. It's such a big learning curve to be able to do the simplest of tasks, especially for, for somebody who's not coming from that space. Once you're in it, it's hard to see, as with all things. So what we looked at was how, okay, what is a developer? We started with microservices to say, okay, I'm going to build an app that I want to deploy to mm. Kubernetes. Then we said, what are all the problems that I'm going to face doing this thing? And we started chasing them. And we actually had two people, um, David Fowler and Ryan Nowak, at the same time over the Christmas break last Christmas um, or over that period, not, not whilst they were on break necessarily, but over that Christmas period, started prototyping two things aiming at that same goal, but one focused heavily on the developer experience and one focused much more on the deployment part of it, which are both different problem sets. Mashing those two things together is what became Project High. Resolving the barrier of entry or lowering the barrier of entry to trying something on Kubernetes to the point where you could just about only know stuff about .NET and still get there was what we were after. And then... That's that's what Ty became, and then we're not, and then the, because it's an experiment, where does it go to in the future? We know, have lots of ideas, could become many things. Okay, so last year I had a project that mm -hmm. I was working on, and it had three SQL databases that it needed to connect to. Yeah. It had two web applications running technically on the same URL at different paths, mm. and I spent probably two weeks configuring the Docker files. I was using Docker Swarm because Kubernetes, oi. Uh, I was using Docker Swarm and Nginx and just everything that I could find, but it took me like two weeks to get that configured and working. And even then, sometimes the Nginx prox, reverse proxy didn't, didn't set itself up correctly or something, and so I couldn't actually access the site that I was trying to develop. And then... A couple months ago, we were on our Wednesday live stream, we were trying to learn Kubernetes. And I swear I spent a month of Wednesdays just asking, I like, I don't get it. Like, why? 
Why is it so difficult? Why can't it just work? And this solves all of that. But how difficult is it to get this running? So in your specific case, uh, it'll spin up all of your apps and your three databases and such without any effort very quickly. The problem of configuring ingress and our, and, and our ingress, I'm not 100% sure on whether the richness exists yet to be able to do everything that you're doing where you share your URL space, so we'd have to check that. But the intent would be that it should be trivial. It should be kind of a dozen lines of YAML. YAML because, what a, because that's apparently what you use. That's how you know you're doing cloud native. There's lots of YAML. Um, so it should be so it should be very easy is the answer. That's what we hope. We hope the answer is that all of that time you spend and pain that you spend can go away. Okay. And then is there, so, I mean, that would be, that would be beautiful if uh, like the reverse proxy and, and everything worked. Okay. So I know that there's a command line for this. And I, I briefly saw some of the command line interface and that part looked really simple. And you mentioned uh, earlier that there's tie run, which is, very analogous to .NET run. Yeah. Is there integration with Visual Studio? Is there a way that I could just hit F5 yeah. and, it, and it launches TIE? Not yet. We expect to be able to produce Visual Studio and Visual Studio Code and Visual Studio for Mac tooling to be able to run one of these and attach debuggers primarily. So one of the gaps today is you do tie run on the command line in order to, 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 to debug that. You can debug it. So one of the other problems of containerizing apps on your local machine, if you're running in a container on your local machine, is there's now a barrier between you getting a debugger in there. But you have to know to just to go attach. You have to do the attach debugger flow, not the F5 flow, which we have seen some people say, I've just never done that before. Like, I don't actually know what the thing is to do that. I've always just pressed F5. So we do expect you to be able to F5 it eventually and for us to give you some tooling in Visual Studio, probably that lays some sort of tooling to either list them all and attach to them, the debugger to them all or press F5 and debug all of them at once is what we expect. But right now it doesn't exist, mostly because there's just not enough people building it. You've got me excited now. I'm going to start pushing <laughs> this at work. So it better, it better make it all the way through experimental to production. <laughs> Excellent. Um, what we'll probably do is start with something like a VS Code extension because the barrier of entry for us is a little bit low. But it also depends on on where we go and who which people start like participating. Right. Currently, the people running Ty are all framework CLI devs. They're not Visual Studio Visual Studio Code devs, but that may well change. So, in that this is a public experiment, we can look at the the code. We can look under the hood. And the fact that the container story and the container orchestration story is still young in the industry, is, is it an incredible challenge to get all those pieces working and keep them working as the container ecosystem evolves? Yeah, so far, no, like so far, we haven't had lots of breaks from that that I'm aware of. Actually, we broke ourselves more than that because it doesn't work with .fi right now because Ty uses msbuild and and your projects are msbuild and so on and so forth. So like um, we have to add features to be able to support arbitrary versions of .NET because the thing is .NET. The thing is that I like to say words like Ty deeply understands .NET and as such it can generate Docker images for you. In reality, what that means is we know what a Docker file looks like for .NET. It says from .NET. So like deeply understanding your .NET project really just boils down to, I know what version of .NET to put at the top of the from clause in your Docker file to some extent, to a fairly large extent. Um, and then you do build, do publish locally and then we put copy the bits over. For those of you who have used Docker and if you've done a bunch of streaming of this lately, it sounds like at least some of your fans probably do. Ty basically does a .NET publish locally targeting Linux so then it 
generates a Docker file, puts it on disk in a temporary location, saying from.net, copies that published output into it, and then pushes it to a registry. Right? And then it automates using kubectl to be able to push push all that stuff to Kubernetes. And when running with ingress, it spins up a local proxy that runs along with all of your app to give you an ingress URI with rules that automatically then proxy off to your to your like subparts of any of your apps that are exposing URIs. And today it's a very basic proxy that I think Fowler wrote in an evening. But in the future, it'll probably be a more, more featureful proxy, one, one that is more production ready. So it may give you a little bit more realism perhaps. But with that, it's not all .NET bits. It's not all .NET things that, that the demonstrations and the, the sample applications yeah. include, right? Yeah, that's right, right? So like we, I did a survey long ago. If you follow me on Twitter, a while back, I did this survey saying, hey, if you're doing .NET microservices, do my survey for me. And if you put your contact information in, there's a chance I would have actually called you <laughs> if you did that thing, which, I, which we did. We did a bunch of that. One of the things that was very interesting out of that survey, and we see it resonating again and again, is lots of .NET developers use JavaScript. And that's a fairly obvious, there's a fairly obvious hypothesis you could draw, which is, yeah, people's front ends are built in JavaScript, right? Their Angular apps, their React apps, and so on and so forth. Also, interestingly, out of that survey, there were lots of people who loved Python, who were either interested in learning Python or already using Python as part of their .NET solution, which there's also some easy, easy hypotheses to draw about why that might be, which we could talk about, but it's a little bit beyond the point. <laughs> um, so we knew very early on, basically from the very beginning of Ty, we knew because of that customer kind of data that I, we had generated, um, we knew very early on that lots of people were going to be asking for JavaScript. So we did talk about it a fair bit. And so the, the escape hatch, I guess, that doc that Ty has is you can give us a Docker file. So you could say in your configuration file, this is my app, here's its Docker file, bind HTTP to this port for whatever runs at that from that, whatever the output of that Docker file is. And so that what that means is with .NET, we automatically generate Docker files and everything for you. But if you go to the effort of learning enough about Docker to be able to build a Docker file for your Angular app, you could throw that into the Thai YAML and then we'll take care of orchestrating it for you at least on your local machine. Even though we don't understand how to deploy it or how to generate images for it necessarily, we can at least run it for you locally, give you the dev loop and all that sort of stuff. Um, so that's what now, if you look at in, our, in the Thai repo on .NET Thai on GitHub, there's a samples directory and it has an app with core, it's called Apps with Core Angular, which is an Angular app and a .NET, with an Angular front end and a .NET Core back end, like a movie app thing. Um, and it has a YAML file and it's, it's some sample code there that you could, you could get started in that. So we have some support for that from escape hatches. And it's also, you know, by definition, supports running SQL and like Redis and all those sorts of things that we talked about. So yeah, you, you're, we end up, you end up often running more than .NET, but um, we also wanted to stick with what we know, right? Like fundamentally, this is a few people on the .NET team building a thing. We, didn't, we don't want to go too far outside of our, what we actually understand before we, have, before we actually build something of value for, well, for that. Could this theoretically be useful for any language? Sure. But I don't know because I don't use every language, so I'm not going to project my uh, project my like ecosystems um, problems and solutions onto necessarily every other ecosystem. But it's entirely possible that a future of Thai would be polyglot, where you can put kind of an arbitrary set of languages in there, and it runs all of them, and it knows how to Dockerize all of them, and things like that. Right? That would be an entirely possible future, entirely feasible future. That kind of makes me think almost like a plugin architecture for Thai, where yeah. someone could describe the process that they wanted to add to Ty in some fashion, and then Ty could, could pick that up and then use it. Is the .NET stuff 
formatted in that kind of way with Intai, or is it is it very hard coded at the moment? Yeah, not yet. It's still pretty. It's still pretty hard coded for the most part. Like there is some support for things like extensions, like Dapper support, for example. I think which we talked about. I may have mentioned before. You can go kind of extension Dapper. That that is kind of a plugin model to be able to say, oh, this is a Dapper app, and I'm going to be using Dapper sidecars with my um, with my projects. If you've seen the Dapper project, D A P R, not not uh, Dapper the uh, ORM. Yeah, so there is some of that support, but it's not fundamentally architected to be able to support multiple languages today because there was no need for the, to do that architecture, right? So that, hence, I say things like feasible and potential and possibly, right? Like it's it's all it's, it's a, you can see it. It's not a very far of a leap, but it's not what we're trying to. It's not necessarily what we're trying to build now. I just don't like to completely close off those things because it's such an obviously attractive thing, and if we had lots of groundswell support of people asking for it seems entirely reasonable that we would potentially listen to them. Right? Yeah, well, and it would it would certainly increase the uh, the reach of Thai. Just from the stuff that I've seen, just being able to have Kubernetes be something you don't have to think about and, and, and just have a very simple configuration is uber valuable to me. So being able to have that configuration both for my JavaScript, Angular, or React apps and also for uh, the .NET would be super fantastic. I think to an extent, like, and I'm pretty sure if you see some of Kelsey Hightower's, the way Kelsey Hightower talks, there's a general understanding amongst a lot of people in the industry, at least, that who know more about this than I do, which is, which is that we believe Kubernetes is going to fade to the background and that it becomes an implementation detail. It runs lots of things and you don't hopefully don't have to care about it as much. Um, imagine experiences like Azure Container Instances. Where as long as you've containerized a thing, it can get run for you somehow. Like that's it's not a, it's not a stretch to imagine that thing running. There's like a Kubernetes cluster that runs your Azure Container instances, right? It's not a stretch to imagine an architecture like that, even if that's not actually how it's built, right? Um, and I think there's a hope that more and more Kubernetes becomes the great thing that runs everything. It's like assembly. Like JavaScript was the assembly of the web, and it's proving more and like like what how Hanselman used to say that how JavaScript was the assembly language of the web. Go use CoffeeScript or TypeScript or something back before we had, you know, WASM and such to be even I mean, uh, to be an even more analog of, uh, of of assembly for the web. That's that's kind of how I hope to think about Kubernetes. I hope we can make it collectively as an industry we can make it fade away to be the implementation detail of like I build applications and I expect that application is going to be containerized. And the language of all cloud hosting providers is containers. And I run a container, and that's how I get my code into production. And as such, we want to, you want to build tooling experiences to get things into, into containers and into production. And ideally, you want that to be as smooth, as fast, as right-click published web services for those of you who have been building ASP.NET Core applications and deploying them to web service on Azure or any of the other clouds. Have, all the other clouds have equal or even sometimes better experiences. That's the kind of way that I want to think about this. I want to, well, that's kind of the direction that I want this to happen. But if that is the case, let's imagine that is the world where you make everything containerized, you're still stuck with these fundamental problems of, okay, that's cool. I can containerize something and I guess I could learn Docker and I could do a Docker push, but I still can't make two web apps in a solution in Visual Studio and F5 and have them work today. Like if you go do that, you go do .NET new web app and then .NET new web app again inside a directory in two different subdirectories, say, and then try and run them both. They'll break. 
for all sorts of stupid reasons. They both, by default, listen on the same port and it conflicts. Like, and you want them to talk to each other and you need to manually write all the configuration. So now, so what today, what building two applications that talks to each other is like in .NET is probably some combination of manually written configuration files with some sort of key convention that points to each other along with manually tweaking ports to be able to get them all to spin up, hard coding those ports in several different locations because you've hard coded it in the launch properties to be able to run each project and then you've copied that and pasted it into the config file for the other project that wants to talk to that thing. And now you've got copy values of things pasted all over your solution and they're all pointing to each other and it all works until someone changes one of those values and then everything falls apart. And so setting all that up and then not having it fall apart when anything changes is the big dev time benefit that Diatire gives you. And then not letting you to learn Docker in order to get started to get into this Docker world or this new platform, this new default standard that all applications will be deployed to is the production part of Ty. And right now it takes you all the way to Kubernetes because that seems like a good thing to try and help people do. The point is really, as all things that we try and do is just to give you the most productive developer experiences we can for how we see the software industry moving. And that is how we hope the West, where everybody thinks, everything seems to indicate. I don't think it's controversial at this point to say that we expect in the future everybody is deploying in containers regardless of where those containers are going. If that's the case, where well, let's take some logical conclusions and that's where Ty starts to hit. What's next for Project Ty? Are there any stumbling blocks or, or any certain milestones that you expect to, to hit and become something, whatever's next for an experimental project? We just added uh, dev support for functions, which lets you have an Azure function in your project and then it will spin up the functions kind of local runtime and run your function. We haven't got deployment support for that. So we expect to get deployment in so that you can, at some point, so that you can then deploy those functions apps and they'll run on the cluster along with all the rest of your apps using with all the rest of your stuff. And we want to get some tooling in so that you can see some tooling, um, a few things like that to uh, kind of high points to be able to see in, in hopefully upcoming releases. But the big milestone for us is that our experimental phase technically ends at the same time in that .NET 5 ships. So at .NET Coffee November, the time we were given to be allowed to experiment on this thing in the open ends so in november i need to you know we need to write the thing that says how successful the project was and ask decide what we want to try and do with it in the future um so for me right now it is write that pitch write that start writing that thing and then see whether or not the next couple like the way that i'm approaching this is let's write what i think it is right now and see is there anything we would do in the next couple of months that might try and change that opinion? What are we most unsure of? What are that, that is the highest priority for the experiment, um, which may mean we unfortunately cut like important features in order to be able to experiment with something to just test the last in the last final gasp of the experimental phase. Um, but yeah, I hope to then move into productization phase of making it a real thing over the course of .NET 6. But obviously there is no commitment from anybody to do that thing yet. It's just what I hope to do as the owner of the project. Is there any opportunity for those of us out in the wild to help, to contribute, to test, to, to use? Yeah. So the best thing you can do is try a tie, do the survey that is built into the dashboard and talk to us about it. Send me tweets, log issues, like tell us what you think. Did it meet up to your expectations? Did it not? Like you just interact with us is the most valuable thing you can do. 
up to and including saying, I don't understand why Tai exists. As long as you're prepared for us to say, what would you do instead? Like, yeah, so, yeah. Just, just try to use <laughs> Kubernetes. You'll understand why Tai exists. <laughs> yeah, potentially, right? But I have had, why does this exist as a comment given to us before? Um, like in the survey and things in the in the survey that we do and stuff like that, and I think from some point of view, for for some people, once you're there, once you get deeply enough into Kubernetes Netties land and you have a full pipeline set up and you are fully bought into all of the great flexibility that Kubernetes buys for you, I think for some of those people, it is hard to see everybody else all the way back over here who are like Docker files do what now, and they've got to somehow get that into Kubernetes. So I think that's where that those people are coming from. But yeah, like tell to us, create issues, even if you think your idea is dumb. It's no far, I guarantee you I've had worse ideas for features that I've submitted and I've proposed them to Fowler and he's looked at me and gone, huh? Which is the way Fowler reacts when you don't understand, when he doesn't, when there's something wrong with what you just said. And at least for the time being, the, the place to go is, is github.net slash tie. Yep, absolutely. GitHub.net slash Ty. Um, everything, every, everything is there. There is nothing secret about Ty that exists anywhere, other than I guess the survey results, which I'll probably publish at some point in a blog post anyway. That's uh, yeah, that's that's where everything exists. So try it out and let us know and talk to us. We love hearing from you or tweet about it. We kind of flew under the radar a little bit with Ty because we wanted to try and get we wanted to try and get the people who are already doing microservices to talk to us the most early on because that was the point of the early phase of the experiment. So we spent more time on like Twitter and talking to people on GitHub and stuff like that trend and actively and just like specifically trying to solicit that type of feedback. But I think we're beyond that now. We just want to hear from anybody doing anything. Um, tell us if you try it out and you think it might be valuable, try it. Try your three SQL servers with, with a shared URI space and see if the ingress falls over or not. Right. Because I'm sure there are problems and it'll be interesting for us to see whether the whether the tool fundamentally doesn't allow for your weird scenario or whether that's just a thing we haven't got to yet, which is often the answer, unfortunately. People are like, yeah, I want to do this. And we're like, yeah, I can understand why you want to do that. Not that many people writing code for Ty. Like, we'll get, <laughs> that makes sense. Like, yeah, it's not a bad scenario. We just haven't written the code yet. Happens a lot during experimental phases because unfortunately that's the way it goes. One of the things that we like to have all of our guests do is kind of provide their their words of wisdom to our listeners. What words of wisdom would you give to those individuals? I want to caveat this advice around I'm not advocating um, this first bit. I want to have caveat around I'm not advocating spending all of your time, you know, spend all your weekends doing this, spend all your free time doing this and then burn out and destroy your life in other interesting ways. But the open source community let me say this. If you go create an issue about C-sharp, good chance Mads is going to respond or see it, right? Mads Torgerson, this is, right? If you create an issue on Ty, you're probably going to have Fowler and Ryan and people like that, like the architects of ASP.net, see it and see your writing and like interact with you if your ideas are good like or if your ideas are interesting or if they want to know more, right? Like you have access to... The vast to who name name and a segment of the current like of 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 all of this of all of .NET at least and I'm thinking this is probably much broader to the industry as a whole. You have the ability via open source to interact with some of the best people in the industry, some of the most technically technically deep and thoughtful leaders that we have, and you can interact with them and you can learn from them if you want to, right? If you want to get involved. 
but it can be really intimidating. And there's an entire, probably an entire podcast or podcast series on that fact alone on trying to tap into that. But it is a thing that you can absolutely tap into. But as with all things, and as we talked about, as we touched on earlier on, it's very easy in those things as well to get up, to get caught up in this fueled frenzy of, of work and don't let it, don't let it destroy you. Don't let it take over your life. So since you just mentioned it, uh, how could somebody get in contact with you? Uh, social media or, or maybe a GitHub issue or something? So yeah, I'll probably see tire issues eventually if they get logged. But um, if you tweet on Twitter is probably the best way. I have thousands of unread emails, but no unread tweets, which probably shows you the amount of time I spend on one versus the other. At <laughs> um, Condron G, C-O-N-D-R-O-N-G is my Twitter account. If you tweet me, then... I'll probably see it and it's 90 something percent likely that I'll respond in some way. Talk to me there if you want to talk to me, but if you want to talk about the project in general, and you can just talk about the project in general, people do talk to me on Twitter about the projects in general. Um, but a good way to get access to basically everybody working on tire, for example, is to create an issue on tire. So if you want to target the team rather than me, go create an issue on tire. All right, Glenn, thanks so much. Really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today. No problems. I'm hoping I didn't meander and otherwise do what I am usual to do, which is talk about completely unrelated things that I think are interesting. That was Glenn Condren. Glenn is a program manager on the application platform team at Microsoft, where he spends most of his time working on the ASP.NET 5 core runtime. Before joining Microsoft, Glenn was a developer in Australia, where he worked on software for various government departments. If you like this episode, please like, rate, and review on iTunes. Find show notes, blog posts, and more at sixfiguredev.com. And catch us live each week on Twitch, and be sure to follow us on Twitter at sixfiguredev. This has been another episode of the Six Figure Developer Podcast, helping others reach their potential. I am John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. Ah!